Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us and we'll get into today's guest. I am joined by Jeff Cavanaugh, who is the head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute and the author of The Live Enterprise. Jeff, how's it going today? Outstanding. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so excited. I know that, you, you know, people come into our, our sort of podcast list and I've actually heard of Infosys before. Well, why don't you tell our listeners and our audience a little bit about Infosys, a little bit about the Knowledge Institute and how you got to where we are right now? You bet. Infosys is a company about a quarter million people, 250,000 employees, 13 billion in revenue. And it's somewhere between leading edge of tech and a lot of the back back office operations. A lot of our work is done, whether it's the iPhone in your hand or the toy that, toy that you're driving or something like that. A lot of the tech behind it, a fair amount of the big changes. We do some some pretty interesting things as well, like we're distributing a lot of the vaccines, managing that, a lot of contact tracing. So it's a large diversified services company, but take a pretty human approach to things, trying to make sure that we're making an impact. Pretty big foundation and sustainability arm as well, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit. Very proud of some of that work. And actually, that's what spurred much of the content we're talking about. The Knowledge Institute is like an academy, but it's more like a, uh, a research house, mm-hmm. taking some of the things that we that we're able to uh, to learn out there with our 1400 clients or the research teams and telling stories, helping distill these insights. And it's, it's essentially free of charge. We're trying to convert knowledge and insights and share them with the world. Some cases through reports and, and papers, some cases through videos. We actually have a podcast as well, the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with folks. And in some cases, interactive types of, of AI-driven things where people can you know, self-serve. And the main thing is sharing knowledge, I've done some pretty cool things, you know, Abbey Road Sessions, World Economic Forum, UN, as well as grassroots in somebody's high school or college, you know, universities. So I'm just trying to make sure we help the world a bit because it's moving pretty rapidly. And there are some really good things going on that I think need a better audience. So that's our mission. And personally, beyond leading this longtime knuckle dragging consultant and industry practitioner and trying to make sure that practical element remains in what we're doing. And in addition, a uh, real passion for teaching. I'm on some, some boards of advisors, but also over at University of Texas at Dallas, where I'm a professor there, trying to share information on um, critical thinking and visualization and a lot of the core skills that distinguish really good analysts or consultants from folks that are pretty good at what they do, but can't really either communicate it or maybe distill insights. So 
that's that's pretty much the plate coming to you live here from uh, my farm in indiana so maybe a little bit of time get out there and work on the farm some too that's awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here. And I, you know, I, I recognize the mission alignment in, in a rapidly changing world with a lot of challenges, being able to use your powers for good and not for evil to be able to help other people and support them and in, in what's happening with them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's very cool. You mentioned so as we, we get into it, and again, if you're just joining us on, on YouTube or on the podcast or wherever you're at, put your questions in the chat. But one of the things that you had mentioned was critical thinking and visualization. So why is critical thinking such an important skill to be able to foster and develop in both leaders and frontline employees? Well, unfortunately, if you turn on the news or or scroll through, you'll see why it's important, because we live in a world of lots of data, lots of lots of information flowing, some cases misinformation. And the ability to look at this stream, this feed, all these multiple feeds coming at you and make sense of it. Take a fact-based approach to things. Very human, not 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 cold or overly analytical, but, but just a very fact-based. You, if you make an assertion, why do you think that? What's your source? Do you, can you triangulate it? Do you have two or three data points that give you the boldness to when someone gives you nonsense to be able to say, no, 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 what are your sources? And that way you can agree to disagree. You can, whatever it is, you're building it on a solid foundation. Uh, I think converting relevant pieces of information uh, into some coherent message, recognizing patterns, being able to distill some sense of of, of logic or reason from just information flowing. And then importantly, being able to convert that to something that's persuasive so somebody will adopt it. Maybe you're in a sales position or maybe you're just trying to get your idea implemented. You get a project and someone's being rather silly and you're trying to help them see the merits of it. You know, I can push it to you all, all day long, but uh, if any of your folks have seen Inception, that's the real story, isn't it? Give somebody the seed of an idea, it grows within them. You know, they internalize it and the ability to critical think means you're stripping away a lot of your biases and you're trying to get at something. So critical thinking plus the empathy. And then the really cool thing about visualizations is if, like Mark Andreessen has said, software is eating the world and data is the new oil and all that, then your pictures need to be representations of data in a very visually appealing way. Can you show all this crazy information? Maybe it's even animated or flowing in a way that it's beautiful, or at least it's pretty crisp. And you pull all those things together. That's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that yep. you mentioned the the visualization and the data is a we're inundated with data, mm-hmm. being able to get people to better understand that more effectively. But I think also one of the key considerations is the speed at which people process and the medium at which they receive information on their phone or what have you, that you have it in these bite sized snippets and people's attention mm-hmm. is being short. So Speaking on that visualization, I mean, what are some, I mean, best practices that you'd say for leaders in order to be able to communicate, get these sort of change initiatives going and, and moving forward some of those key things where there might be a little bit of resistance with their teams? And you alluded to it a little bit, but if you want to expand on that. Well, thank you. Two parts really quickly on, on the idea of developing an insight. Just think about five, five steps. The first is design. You create a model 
you decide what your hypothesis is or the general message you're trying to get across or test for us, you design. Then there is research. You collect some data. Now, now maybe that data is flowing at you. Maybe you're, you're connecting a survey. Maybe you're doing something that is uh, secondary research. But the fact is you're collecting data. Third is analyze. Maybe you're looking for patterns. Maybe you're doing a, a regression. Maybe you're doing something more qualitative. You're actually conducting analysis. That's the heart of it. And then there's interpretation. You can visualize it. You can sort it out, remove outliers. And finally, there's an adoption piece where you're communicating with someone. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you're trying to convince yourself of something. If you think about the insights process as those five broad steps, that's a good way to look at it. And it's big picture, I think. The other is if you can convert this from this topic from being what can I push at people or, or being very self-oriented and flip it to where you've got this attitude of grateful service that you're in the middle of doing something. It's a project. You're working at a company. Maybe it's a social enterprise and you've got the ability to serve someone else. It could be a user, customer, your boss, whoever's receiving your information. And if you treat it like it's your ability to serve someone by giving them good information, it's compelling, you're helping them improve their lot in life. Maybe it's a better report. Maybe it's, it's, it's a result. You're serving them in some kind of a client capacity. Then all of a sudden, you mentioned that word alignment early on, you get aligned, transcends language, culture, any kind of biases, because people can cut through it pretty quickly and understand when you've got their interests at heart. And you're not being a martyr for the cause. Call it enlightened self-interest, because obviously you either have a sale to make, a project, or a job to get done. But if you can just put that idea that you're grateful for your situation and you're serving someone else while you're working through this insights development, that's a pretty powerful way to make anything that you do more relevant and, and something people can get on board with. Hmm. Uh, that's helpful. So I like the fact that there's like a model, a structure, a framework, because I find that those things like guide people and support them as, as they move. Well, let me just jump in for a second. because The word framework, a lot of folks just nod their head. It's like those long words you used to read as a kid in a book. You kind of just kind of nod your head and you scroll past and you have no idea what they meant. A framework is such an important overlooked thing. It's like an Iron Man suit you can wear because like Isaac Newton said, Sir Isaac Newton, is you're literally standing on the shoulders of giants. If you use the Porter Five Forces model, you're basically starting wherever he ended up. Hmm. If you're looking at some other framework, it could be very specific to your industry. It could be Covey's two quadrants, you know, important, urgent, you know, the, the whole mix. You're basically starting with all the greatness that they've done. So you don't have to start from scratch. And it could be rules of thumb. Like in the consulting business, you know what, if if you weren't at least X percent billable or if you didn't have this kind of rate or if you didn't do this kind of work as a business, you weren't making money. Those were heuristics that you can be the world's best plumber, wrench turner, digitally speaking. But if you didn't do those things, you weren't going to be good as a consulting firm and you couldn't pay your people and you couldn't grow and do with those things. So I think frameworks is one of the most important ways to be excellent because it gets you good quickly and then you've got more time to focus on being great. Hmm. 
on the speaking on the shoulders of giants, I mean, you've had a lot of careers, different positions and different organizations. How have you found in your specific experience? What was it like coming into new organizations, being able to drive those? And were there any like lessons learned without giving any details away of specific moments in your career? Where like, wow, this didn't go like I wanted it to. Or here's what I did in this position. And it was able to create a new like a transformation within one of the organizations I was working with. First of all, it's thinking about your path. I mean, there is a, a group of people, maybe it's one half of 1%, it's a small percentage, who either went to an elite school, college, or, or an elite strategy firm of some kind out of school. They got the very best of the best, and they got a real head start. And God bless them. That's, that's great. The rest of us didn't. Like in my case, you know, got a good engineering job, was out there. After a few years, you start to realize there's a lot you didn't know. You know, there's this path of management consulting or there's this path of research and this path, these areas. And I think for me, the arc of learning or how it came together was over time, I'd have these questions and I'd, I'd find something that was done really well by someone and said, I'm going to try that. And so rather than being handed a toolbox by the right professor at Stanford or, you know, whatever college or by the right strategy firm partner, you know, day one as a young analyst, had to kind of build it as I went and testing things. And I think most of us fall in that category somewhere along the path in college, your first job before you're married or have kids or whatever arc you're on, you, you learn something and realize you are missing a bunch of stuff. And then you just now know what you don't know. And rather than being depressed by that, add it to your toolkit and build on it. I think that for me has been probably one of the more profound things because then you're a continual work in process. You are a lifelong learner and you're, you're taking different learnings. Maybe it's that partner that you did work under. Maybe it's a professor or a boss. In some cases, maybe it was a horrible boss and you know exactly what you don't want to do because of the way they, that person turned you off or, or maybe something backfired. The other thing is by having a couple data points, you get some, some you know, courage or convictions to say that thing you, you thought before you're really sure of it because you saw it play out, you know, a couple areas, maybe the way to treat people you know, what you can and can't do by email. And for me, it was the power, you know, power frameworks and this is rapid experimentation. And there aren't really failures. Maybe there are expenses you have that didn't pan out. But if you learn something from it, you're guaranteed to incorporate that in the next thing that you tried. And whether it's a software application that wasn't quite what you thought whether it's a project, you tried this really cool animation and, and, and you went down in flames in your, in your, your presentation, you know, in PowerPoint, whatever it is, you learn it and you go. I think the other thing that really helped me is there are a few times where it just did some stupid, not stupid, but crazy things. Like you found this billionaire's right-hand person, you know, when you're just kind of coming out of school and say, could I meet with you? Could, could you give me some advice? Could you come talk to me and a couple of my buddies? Several of them say no, but you know what? A couple of people said yes. And it was really cool. You know, an insight on these PE firms and how they're run. Or in one case, this this, this multi-billionaire real estate portfolio mogul, you know, would they chair and they you could tell what's going on. So I think sometimes understanding that your limitations self-imposed, and especially coming out of college, when you're first starting your career, you got this golden ticket, like you know, Willy Wonka. Where you can ask somebody and say, you're asking for a job, for money, for anything else. You're saying, could you share some advice? Looks like you got it figured out. And it's amazing. You know, we're all out there, the, those of us that are a little deeper in our careers, 
And most people do want to help, but we're not out there meeting the bushes trying to figure out who to go help. And so if someone gives you an opportunity to do that, maybe it's speaking to a class, maybe it's just, you know, lunch or a coffee, you're talking to somebody, they'll, they'll do it. They just want to know you're sincere. So I think especially those in your audience who are uh, fairly junior or starting off in their careers, it's not a liability. You actually have an advantage. So take advantage of it. Mm. And I, I also hear the sort of the opposite, not the opposite, but like again, going to that heuristic is that if you've been in your career a long time, it's not to say that you're done learning. It's not to say that like you can't do things a different way and that if you get older in your career, longer in the tooth, so to speak, that you can still apply different learning models and it doesn't have to be a certain way. Because I think if this year has taught us anything, that it's needing to be adaptable and then recognizing that you go in those situations, it goes a certain way, and then you can apply that learning, that model to something else. I was in a conversation with somebody today and we had a, a debrief about like this stakeholder conversation we had and then reflected it to say, hey, like this is what we learned here. We learned here, we learned this. Now there's like a fairly similar situation, another place, like, hey, can we use those learnings? And then multiplying that across. So from an organizational way, how can we foster that desire, want to be able to take those learnings and recognize the application, that sort of like aha moment, like, oh, I've been here before. I can use this to apply, use this tool to apply over here. Well, a few years ago, uh, our company, pretty big company, had reached kind of an asymptotic level where some, some really good things that had gone on before were starting to maybe reach the point of diminishing returns. You know, some of the trends, some of the product lines and approaches. Our company was and it is big in lifelong learning, big on continuous learning. And we decided, you know, we better figure something out. Like what's the next wave? You know, what's the next? And we doubled down on learning even more and encouraged people, made it easier. You know, things that were either in person or on app, you know, may, may have via an app. And made it very easy for people and also shrunk the, the size of what you could learn, you know, to smaller and smaller increments. And what was interesting is that also drove a new operating model, I think, for the individuals as well as the company. Whereas rather than having really large programs or really big grandiose ideas that took a long time, things became much more agile. And we developed this shared platform called Digital Runway, Shared Digital Infrastructure, that allowed lots of small teams or individuals to generate more ideas and tap into it. It's kind of like if you wanted to go create your own publishing platform, you could do that or you could tap into, I don't know, WordPress or Medium, right? And you wouldn't read it from scratch. There's a platform you can tap into very quickly as a, as a small team or a person. And we did that across the board for all those things that normally take big, big team groups. And we found that had a profound impact because it got the best of both worlds, the best of the Silicon Valley garage startup or the person that was able to learn quickly, as well as having the strength and the infrastructure that for good ideas, they could scale. Uh, and so I think anyone out there, it's not either or, like I wanna have this big thing that I'm doing, like I must go get a PhD or this big degree, or I'll just do something, you know, YouTube video and I'm done, or you know, same kind of dichotomy, it isn't all or nothing the ability to combine and do both. And essentially, when companies deep down are wondering, how does Google or Apple or Amazon do what they're doing? How can we be more like them? That's what it comes down to a lot. 
they've got these platforms that allow them to do big things, but they have lots of very small teams. And like a venture capitalist, you are at stage gates and the best ideas get funded more and more. And the ones that, that don't get starved and those people peel off and do something else. And it's lots and lots of these things going on. And I think at a microcosm, you do that in your own life as well. You have enough of these early stage activities that some of them will be very promising. Could be job leads, could be projects, could be ways of, of doing your work. And then eventually some of them really take off. And it's that viewing it like you have your own product pipeline. Things you're really good at that you're living on, supporting your family and what you're doing. But you also got these two or three other things that you're, you're, you're trying to explore. Like for me, intellectual uh, or thought leadership was a big deal in consulting. And over time, that became so prominent that I've actually stepped in and leading that for the company. So I left the consulting practice behind because that was an idea that seemed to resonate enough that our company needed it. And I think all of us have that where you can do three or four things. There's a primary, so you don't get too, too diluted, but you're cultivating the others and you're learning and being okay to let one go if one's taking off. And it's that portfolio approach that we value in a mutual fund advisor. We value it in a, a venture capitalist. We value it in other parts of life. You can also apply it to yourself. I mean, that's how you have those those innovative companies, the best of the best. And just to make a distinction that there's the companies we hear about all the time, but mm -hmm. there's like your local roofer that has probably incorporated that. You have your restaurant who's like, oh, we just did this like one thing and then it hit. But you need to be willing to put those innovations and, and try new things in order to have that continuous learning, continuous mm -hmm. growth, continuous development that you build on it. Otherwise, you're almost surely sure to regress because your competitors and the environment is going to move faster than you do. So that was one thing. The other thing I heard that was maybe not explicitly stated but un or implied was that in order to have this platform structure and to be able to have this learning and development, there's an era of, of like process and documentation. Like I know that entrepreneurial organizations, they like to move fast. They don't want to be constrained by process documentation. I don't like documentation. It's just extra work. But it, it feels like internally, if you don't have some sort of learning management system, documentation, a place to track all of these experiments, then you're going to risk repeating the same stuff over again or risk losing key parts of what really made that plan or that initiative or that learning successful. Can you speak to that? And am I, am I interpreting that correctly or is it something else? You are. There's some, some interesting metaphors. Um, there, you know, you, you take a, a turn in a, in a vehicle, you can go very slowly, in a very boring way, and it's very safe, or you can turn it hard and go on two wheels, and you might flip and you might not. And essentially, you're trying to find, how can I turn it so I start to go into two wheels, but not quite, right? You, finding the edge. And this idea of mental scaffolding, things that give you frames and frameworks like enough rules to keep you, keep you in the right area, maybe it's compliance. Because, you know, we're in a world where you got to treat people fairly. The governments have all kinds of rules and they change quite frequently in different countries and you know, even data, if you think about that. So if for no other reason than you don't want to be sued or be in jail, rules are important. And certainly if any of your, your audience is, is leading a group, they want to scale or they want to spend more time on innovative things, then you need to digitize or automate 
certain areas. And this is an important point for folks that think agile and DevOps are just for the propeller heads that are you know banging out code. In a world where processes become more automated, that means that the process becomes more programmed if it's rules-based, right? And then that means that DevOps, the development operations, is how you maintain those processes. So essentially business process management is this DevOps and, and extreme automation world. And you can lament that or you can say, fantastic. You can now do in 15 minutes or with 5% of your, your brain what used to take most of your time and now you can focus on the good stuff. You can serve that customer better. You can think of a, of a creative idea. You can experiment more because how many of us say, yeah, it all sounds great, but when do I have time to experiment? I can't take care of yesterday, let alone think about tomorrow. And so the degree to which you can systematize things. And if nothing else, you know, we, we hopefully take positives from uh, this, this COVID era. And one of them, especially for those of us that were able to work from home, you know, don't have to be in the front lines all the time. Power of routine. And I know it's a, it's a trendy thing out there, but is it a person, personally getting off the road and being able to add one routine after another just to take care of some things? It's freed up the creativity and the productivity like I wouldn't believe, you can't believe. And I think we can all, always look at it and say in your own life, what is it that, in fact, I remember doing a lot of consulting with Cisco on the West Coast during really the glory years for them and working with their engineering teams, we're trying to put in place controls, documentation, because can you imagine 30 million lines of code and there's an error? How do you, how do you chase it? They were building this beast you know, that ran the internet. And you know, if AT&T goes down on Valentine's day for a few hours, that's not a good thing. <laughs> and even worse is how do you go fix it immediately? You know? So we, we put the back to them and said, you know what? It is important because if you can have the routine part of your job be taken care of, be governed by rules, guess what that frees up your brain to do? Take the internet to the next generation, to have, you know, adorn those walls of patents with even more patents, to you know, do great things. And once people realize that by, by shifting your work and segmenting some of it into the routine, and as soon as you can do that, you automate it and you're in a different world, and then there's the part for the creativity you can sink your teeth into and go. I think people realize you have this duality that you, you need to keep in mind. It isn't one or the other. It's both. Hmm. One of the things that going back to the metaphors, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the marshmallow tower experiment, but like building, you can build fast, but then you also have to sort of like build sustainably. And if you build a big tower with no good foundation, no triangles, nothing, the whole thing is going to collapse. And so if you just keep willy-nilly building code without actually having a structure to support that, then you have to build it so you can go forward. But also if you have to go back, you have that sort of safety net. It feels like you're going I think to say I something. I have uh, personally kept the marshmallow folks in business because you know, hundreds of thousands of people I've trained with, but that is one of the exercises. I was part of one of the early waves of design thinking, both in our company as well as externally. And uh, you're right, that the marshmallow challenge is a good one. And going to the the design thinking, and at the heart of design thinking, if not explicitly, is that sort of grateful service, service leadership. I'm doing this because it's going to help me better serve my people. And so you, it's mentally your mental model around, am I doing this? Am I innovating for the sake of innovating? Am I putting this process in place because it's like more rigorous and I just want to cover my ass? Or is it ultimately going to help me support my customer, whether you're for profit or not for profit? Do you have a customer? 
are you doing it to ultimately create that experience and be able to scale your impact? And I think that bottom line, and Jeff, I'm going to ask you about like the future of work and what you see, but I think bottom line, it's whoever serves the customer the best, whoever meets the expectations the best is going to win. Thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, first of all, design <laughs> thinking is important and it's, it's been, it's been good to me and, and for me as a, as one of those, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing. We've been doing different forms of it for a long time. It was a great way of uh, describing it. At the same time, people have gotten disillusioned with it a little bit. And it's not because it doesn't work. It's because it only works to a point. It works in the room where you're in with your colleagues. It works for prototypes. It works on these smaller scales. And like Agile, how do you make it work at scale? How do you make it work deep into a program? And that's one of the reasons why I developed the live enterprise model. The operating model is because it, it couldn't scale. And so adding this shared digital infrastructure, we call it a quantum organization. In fact, if you see birds fly, you always wonder how they can just fly in unison. There's a term called murmuration, how they can fly without a clear leader. There's no plan. And yet it's, it's beautiful. Each of these birds takes their cue from the six or seven around it. Literally, it is like a series of hundreds of scrum teams all working together. There's a lot of you know details behind it. Essentially, that's what you have to do today because the pace of change, we used to have this phrase we'd use where the rate of market change, in other words, the world around you, is faster than the rate of your ability to create something or respond. And if you think about that, that means you are always behind. You can never quite catch up. And it's a pretty depressing thought. So you actually have to reframe how you go about doing something. It can't be this three-year program, or maybe it can't be a PhD program for seven years, or maybe it can't be in your own life. And you got to figure a way with the, with the first principles of, I got to get this thing done, or at least parts of it in six weeks, or parts of it much faster. The moment that becomes a design constraint and you solve for it, then all kinds of things happen. You organize differently. You have this idea of a prototype being okay to start not the finished product. You lower your guard a little bit and share things that aren't perfect early because you get the early feedback. You can change. If I come to you at the very end, you're going to say, oh, wow, it's not what I want, but I can't tell them that because they work so hard on it. That's pretty good. We'll use it later. You never use it and the thing fails. So design thinking is good, but you've got to have a way to institutionalize or scale it. And that's why this live enterprise model developed. It's been great to see and also, you know, to work in our own company and their places. Oh, I, I like that. And I'm, I was smiling because when I talked to our clients about goal setting, about setting strategic priorities, about making sure that they're smart and time bound, is like, don't worry about getting it perfect and don't worry about what you're going to do in three years. Like, what are you going to do for the next like six to eight weeks, the next quarter, so that you have a time constraint on what you need to deliver? Because that way you don't end up with a strategic plan you created in January. It gets to October and you've made no progress. And then you're like, oh, shit, what do I have to do now? You need a North Star. You need purpose. You need vision. And then you need the very short term. You, you need both of them. What you don't want is something where you're pouring some concrete for somewhere in between. It's not quite strategic but it's also clunky, not flexible. And that's where I think the operating models and even organizational change plans of the past used to be forms driven, heavy in documentation, heavy on sequential links. If nothing changes, hold your breath. It all works. But, you know, in a week, something changes. You buy a company, the price of oil goes from 
80 to 20, and now it's back to 60. The world changes, political winds change, regulatory changes. Oops, you can't get data unless people opt in. My mailing list is destroyed. I can't reach anybody. You know, my thing I charge $10 a month for, all of a sudden, Amazon gives away for free. You know, the world changes. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, Slinny, we just have a question on the chat right now. Marvin is asking about can, if you can share more information about the live enterprise model. So I was going to ask you, can you tell us a little bit more about your book, about the live enterprise model? Just expand on it as we begin to wrap up here. You bet. Like I said, our company was going through some change. We're still doing well. It was just a little more stale. And our founder had come from, um, uh, he'd done great work, he built the company up, he went to work for the Indian government, and there was this unique identifier program called ADAR, where essentially it gave people that didn't exist digitally, biometric ID, they could get checking and government payments and all that. Essentially, those principles learned going from zero to a 1.2 billion people enrolled in this in six years. It's going to take 40, did it in six. There were some things that we learned. And he learned about scale and organizing and all that. And he said, you know, if this works in a government environment, let's try applying it in a corporate environment. So he came back to Infosys and we did that over the course of three years. And it was amazing to do that. And so Rafi, a colleague who's our CTO of the company and truly our rocket scientist, you know, with the architecture and the technology and the platforms, we documented it. A couple hundred individuals, we got together and kind of wrote this thing up. And the book is called The Live Enterprise, Create a Continuously Learning and Evolving Organization, because learning is fundamental. I won't say anything more because it's almost a cliche, but it's terribly important. And the evolving part, this idea that you sense, reason, and respond very quickly, having the equivalent of a knowledge graph or a social graph like a Facebook or, or LinkedIn has, and you're able to connect. So take in all this information, prioritize it, and by everything being connected, you can respond quickly. And then having the ability for individuals or small teams to rapidly make a change or implement ideas while you're on the backs of really strong architecture or a platform that you're able to launch a product, you've got a capability, whatever business you're in. You don't have to wait for two years. You can tap into something. And it means you've got this small central team who's responsible for tools and for, for general some, some protocols or standards, and then lots of people at the edge working with their closest, spinning things up. And that's where your org chart, we call it the no operating model operating model, because you recognize that's the way the world works. And that's how you compete digital stars. Mm -hmm. uh, that it isn't the old way. Companies have economic moats. They've got capabilities. Individuals have, have the same thing. But you need to be very agile and take that into account. And one of the things, I don't want this to just be a book pitch. So one of the things we can do, Anthony, is um, uh, the first chapter, which lays out the model in some detail. I'll just share that with you. And if you want for your listeners, they can have that. The rest of the book basically goes into detail about each one of them. But the, the idea of perceptive experiences, we can get to know the individual, not just a persona, that there is uh, intuitive decisions. So it's AI is so embedded now in where we're headed and what we're doing. You've got to incorporate that intelligence and respond quickly. The other thing is I mentioned this before, you don't have this massive change that a series of small changes very quickly becomes exponential. Mm. And the nice part about small changes is they're nudges, they're small behavioral adjustments, but they stick. 
how often do you want to save the world or, or change your world dramatically? And maybe you fight against your human, your, your nature for a week or two, and then you fall back on the old habit doesn't stick. Imagine a ratchet that you only click once, but every time you do, you don't go back. You're making that progress. And so we also incorporate a lot of behavioral science, atomic habits, nudges, choice architecture. These are some bestseller books out there that went deep in the science of, of behavior. And it's important because how many times in a company do you read something and say, this is corporate speak? Do they really expect us to do this? And instead of being talked at, being talked with, or you know, the message you could resonate. And that's where I think these nudges and behavioral, uh, being smart about the behavioral aspect. And that's why I said the fifth aspect or step in insights development is adoption. Because it doesn't matter how good a report it is or how good of an idea, if you have no followers or no one does what you recommend, you're the world's worst analyst, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's wasteful. Yeah. So, so I think that's, those are some essential elements of the live enterprise model. And the, the part that we're really proud of book-wise is that along the way, we looked at biomimicry lessons from nature and we found some amazing things. Like for example, an octopus, nine brains. We've got a central one and there's a brain literally in each arm. And those brains operate independently. They don't send a signal back. So they can make decisions literally at the edge very quickly. You get sunflowers. There's a reason why they have ultraviolet wavelengths built into many of their leaves. It's because bees see trichromatically like we do, but they see in, in ultraviolet. They don't mm -hmm. see in the same visible range. And so these are literally like, like runways drawing them in to pollinate because pollinization is one of the great unsung heroes of you know, our entire world. And so a lot of these things are embedded we started to think, well, how can we activate that? I mentioned murmuration with birds. So each of these concepts, we also found some ideas in, from nature and, and wove them in. Which is the ultimate person to stand on the back of, listen to the exactly. creation I mean, of all Darwin, of Earth. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't the most intelligent who survives. It's the most adaptable. adaptable. I love that. So I, again, the, the key parts I want to take from here, like we use the, the Cotter model, but really like recognizing how important behavioral change is as part of that to, so that it's sustained. I really like that ratchet example, the, the science behind it. I have no pl problem plugging the book. So the live enterprise by Jeff Kavanaugh and Rafi Trafadar. I don't know if I got that right. Get the book. We'll send out a link for the chapter, which I think is amazing. And and really like what I'm taking away from today, Jeff, is is really like building on itself, continually adapting, continually reflecting, using models, incorporating it slowly, but continuously and recognizing that that's how you can make big transformative change by having everybody both work separately, but in unison, coordinating together and, and moving towards something bigger. Anything that you want to share just to wrap up our, our conversation today? Yes. As part of the social contract of this discussion, I wanted to share whatever I could. My only ask is if you learn something from this or as you learn things in your work, share them with someone. See if you can't plant that seed and send the ripple effect, especially someone earlier in their career, maybe part of an underserved community, and see if you can't start a series of events in motion that you don't know where it goes. But by doing that, the world desperately needs leaders in all kinds of capacities and people who share what they know. And so if you do that, that will definitely make the world a better place. 
That's awesome. I love that. That's super aligned with what we talk about here. So Jeff, thank you so much. If you got a good, share your biggest takeaway today in the chat, folks. I'd love to hear what you're going to take away. And if there's somebody you can share it with, bonus points if you say, I'm going to talk to Steve or Janet and tell them what I learned today. Bonus points for that. Today, my guest has been Jeff Kavanaugh, who is the head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Jeff, just thanks so much for sharing all of this. I am excited to read your book. I'm excited to share it with more people. And I'm just looking forward to everything. So thank you so much for your generous time today. Super appreciate it. Take care now. Bye now. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to share with somebody and take Jeff up on his offer to send the elevator back down for someone on your team. So my name is Anthony Taylor. My guest today has been Jeff Kavanaugh. Appreciate you joining us and we will see you next time. And Heather's going to bring this to her team tomorrow. So she's impacted a couple people already. So that's great. Okay. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code podcast for $100 off. The course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course. Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.